You are listening to the Lone Star Community Radio on 104.5 KCZWLP Conroe and 106.1 KZCCLP Conroe and worldwide on IRLoneStar.com. Good afternoon and welcome to The Legal Connection with Tony and Cheryl. Tony Lynn Collins, The Legal Connection, and Cheryl Ellsworth-Jahani. We are two Texas licensed attorneys, and we are here every Tuesday on 104.5 and 106.1. I are Lone Star, a community radio in uh, Montgomery County, Texas. We're in Conroe right now. Uh, And we um, we have this show as a legal service. For any of our um, listeners that may have legal questions, it's not intended as professional legal advice that, you know, don't do that. But we talk about general topics today. I think it is. Do you? <laughs> but if they act on it, then we could well, be. Well, no, they can. What about uh, liability? We, we this, that was a disclaimer. We're not give, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're not giving direct legal advice to anybody personally because we don't know the facts of the case. Right. But certainly we can guide people to. Uh, there's a lot of pro se people out there and a lot of people that don't realize when you pick up the phone and ask uh, I get these calls all the time and ask for legal help I was told to get an attorney um, that there is a cost involved and <laughs> because your your troubles are now becoming your attorney's troubles and there's a liability if we don't take all of this in seriously and make sure that we're guiding you the right way and if True. Um, so what I like to tell people when they come to me with all of their legal woes is um, how I can guide them financially uh, maybe you want to uh, go to small claims court as opposed to paying an attorney for a $200 dispute. So Exactly. That's what we're here for. We're helping people make the economic and the legal decision fiscal, fiscally correct. Very, very good. Very true, right? Well, today we're going to have the second part of our conversation on preservation of error. All right, and so I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but preservation of error is something that you do at the trial court level. If you get a ruling, there's something going on that is you feel like is a, an error, you preserve it in the record of the case so that you can appeal it later if you want and be effective on appeal. The basis for the concept of preservation of error, the rationale, is to prevent litigants, those are parties, in a suit from seeking to gain an unfair advantage over their opponents by sitting back and doing nothing until after they learn the outcome of the suit. And then, if they're dissatisfied, they complain about an issue on appeal. So it's a way, it it mandates that each litigant has to be actively engaged in what's going on at the trial court level. And if something unfair happens or that they feel is prejudicial to them, then they have to object right and then. And that is easier said than done. It sure is. you are so busy trying to keep track of what you have to do on your own list of items that you have to, your agenda in court, what you have to prove, that you're, uh, unless you've got someone there to help you, which you've helped me before and, and vice versa, to kind of watch what's going on, or even your clients kind of nudging you with their elbow, mm-hmm. you could miss the opportunity in, in an important one to preserve error because the other side is saying something, and if you're looking at the next thing you need to say or just listening to it, you should be objecting because it can't come out. If you object, if you don't object timely and something comes out and you don't use the proper procedure to preserve error in court, then you're going to lose that error, and it could be completely detrimental to your case. For an example, 
example, if um, in a DWI case, if the witness on the stand is a police officer who is really just interested in making sure he gets another notch on his belt, which is really bad because there's so many amazing public servants, but sometimes they aren't that amazing and they're really just interested in getting, you know, DWI uh, uh, patrolman of the year, regardless of whether the person they arrested really was driving while intoxicated or not. And they may go up there and be doing their level best to make sure that a conviction hits. And they just blurt out, oh, well, you know, when I tried to give them a blood alcohol test, but they wouldn't take it or whatever. That's completely improper if you have emotional limit. You're supposed to approach first. You can't bring up a, a breathalyzer test, one that's done by the side of the car anyway. They're not admissible in court. Right. So you, you can't even bring that up. And if they do, if you're not paying attention as the defense counsel, and defense counsel doesn't even have to do anything. I mean, they can just sit there. They don't have to put on any evidence at all. But if but they do have to object well, if they that's should. brought and they, up. Yes, and the problem is if you're busy listening to something else or you're or your client's trying to tell you something or whatever, and you miss yeah. the opportunity, mm -hmm. and you haven't jumped up and said, objection, may we approach, you know, moving for a mistrial, you know, you have to say a, a certain series of things, um, then you're going to miss that error on appeal. It won't, it, that you've completely lost out on the opportunity to take advantage of something that tainted the jury. Okay, um, one key that our listeners need to recognize is that the appellate court, what we're talking about right here, the appellate court has to be able to determine what facts were presented to the lower court. Without some record of what the evidence was, the appellate court can't review it and therefore considers evidence-based issues improperly preserved in the lower tribunal. So... It's not just, though, um, what happens in trial. It's also what you didn't do before trial. So it's it's during the entire case. If you didn't um, request, um, uh, let, let's for, for an example, if you needed somebody for trial, a witness, and you didn't properly subpoena them so they didn't show up because it wasn't served properly or you didn't file the service properly or whatever it may be, and you needed that witness because that witness was somebody that was going to say, hey, um, they were with me the night of the murder or whatever. You know, they were very right. important. Let's say that you just dropped the ball and didn't get it done properly. Well, then you, you didn't preserve error just because it, before trial, before you actually showed up in court, um, the attorney did something wrong or your client didn't tell you to have somebody there, then you didn't, you can't go to the court then uh, during trial and say, oh, well, your honor, this, this person didn't show up because they don't care. It was your job to get them there. And then you can't say after that you've lost at trial because the, your one person that was going to help you didn't show up. You can't bring that up later and move for a new trial because you could have had them there. So it's not just what's in trial. It's preserving error by making sure you're prepared for trial while you're at trial, listening to what's going on. And then even after trial, post-trial, you need to preserve error because what if there was new evidence that was found in the case that you didn't know about because it was prosecutorial, prosecutorial misconduct or it was just something that you received. You mean the prosecutor withheld evidence? Yes, yes. Or, or there was something else came up that you didn't even know about. It was something you couldn't have found out about. And I can't think of an example now because it's not just in criminal, it's also in civil. Mm -hmm. Something came up. That, and how about a new case? New case law? Yeah. Well, yes, new case law is a perfect example. And um, if you then you can move for a new trial because of this new evidence. And so and if you don't do that or if your attorney doesn't do that then you've also you don't you've not preserved error on appeal by moving for a new trial based on the new evidence within that certain time frame when you can do it so um, preservation of error is huge in trials and you can believe that you've got the best case in the world there's no way you're going to lose clearly somebody has committed fraud it's mm -hmm. a slam dunk and but if you don't preserve the error to sh and it turns out bad if you don't preserve the error then you're sitting there at the end of the case 
wondering what happened and what you can do next. And um, it's not always the attorney's fault. A lot of times the attorney should guide you. But if you don't provide that information to the attorney, then it's really the, the client's fault. You know, and so you've got a lot of documentation stuff going on. But that's kind of where we're going with this. Preservation error can happen in trial. It's easy to miss the opportunity in trial. Um, and we'll go over some of the ways that this can happen. But it's also your preparation for trial and after the trial is ended. If it does not hit the record, whether it be in the clerk's file or it happened at trial, um, then you haven't preserved error for the appellate court. If you didn't preserve it properly, you haven't preserved error for the appellate court. And I'll just add that a lot of times you can preserve error properly, um, and you can still lose because the, the the court will the appellate court will determine that it was harmless error. And that happens a lot in criminal cases. The, the the best example I can think of is when you don't get your Miranda rights read to you. All my clients, well, they didn't read my Miranda rights, or they didn't read them to me in English. You know the right you, you have to remain silent. Right, that, that list of things that happened you. because of Arizona mm-hmm. versus a guy named Miranda. He was able to win a case that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court from mm-hmm. Arizona, mm-hmm. where he said because I didn't know that I had a right to remain silent. Mm-hmm. And then it went to the Supreme Court, and they said, "Well, you know what? If you don't, if your rights are not told to you because you don't have, you're not expected to know this, then your case will be overturned. You get a new trial." The problem is, people have used that. That's been around since 1966. Right. People, my clients will tell me, "Oh, well, here's what you need to do." Like you know, the jailhouse right. lawyers. Right. You didn't. Um, my Miranda rights weren't read to me. Well, first I find out when I see the video because everything's videoed now yeah, that the was. Miranda rights were, were read to them on some little recorder mm-hmm. because if they don't know if the officer doesn't know Spanish. They usually read it to them in their language via some, uh, 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 I guess, AI, artificial intelligence mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. And um, if, uh, but if they, if, they, if the, the appellate court determines that even if that didn't occur, it really wasn't harmless because you gave up some information on your own anyway or, or something else, your actions uh, supported what happened and just because you weren't ready to rights, it didn't change anything. So you still might not get an overturn on appeal for stuff like that, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, so I have another example of how it can arise if uh, the litigants are pro se and, you know, we're talking to pro se litigants. Mm-hmm. That means you're representing yourself. Mm-hmm. Former spouse is appearing in connection with a motion related to child support, okay? Often in such cases, no court reporter is present, either because the parties can't afford one or because they're not aware that they need one. However, if That's a rule- so weird, though, that a court reporter wouldn't be present in a family court. Yeah. I've seen it, though, a lot. And if they're not there, you want to step right up to the plate and say, get me on a court reporter immediately. Exactly. Listen mm-hmm. to what Tony just said. It's super important. However, if a ruling is made without a court reporter present, an appellate court has no way to determine what the testimony was if the parties later disagree. And so as a result, any appeal, on any appeal, the result will be an affirmance. Uh, in other words, whatever the trial court ruled, the appellate court is going to mm-hmm. go with mm-hmm. because they don't have any. Evidence, evidence that a bad ruling was made because there's nothing on the record. And um, I will say this, and I've, I've said it before in some other shows, um, The uh, at least uh, five or six years ago when I did a, a trial, crazy, I did a jury trial at a JP court, um, that uh, when we went to the uh, Montgomery County Precinct 3 um, JP court over off Lake Woodlands, mm-hmm. um, they don't, it's not, a, it's not a court of record. At least it wasn't then. I haven't In been other back. words, there's no court reporter. No, and you can ask for one and you won't get one. And you can, you can move for, to have one or if you can bring your own at your own cost and they will tell you no every time. You will not get a court reporter in a court that doesn't have, um, that's a, a court without a record. And that's because when you appeal in JP court, 
they don't use the record. It's de novo, which means mm-hmm. brand new. Mm-hmm. So you just appeal and pay all the cost. And if you have to do all stuff timely, I think you've got um, 10 days to file an appeal in JP court. And it moves over here to the county court. And you just start all over again. Mm-hmm. A little bit more expensive, but that's that's why. So you can't de- you can't demand a court reporter when you have a a court that is not a court of, of I don't want to say a court of record, but a court that that allows a record to be made. On the other hand, if you're in any other level of court, county court on up, then a court reporter is going to be available to you. And if they say there's not one available and ask you for you to waive it, I never waive a court reporter. And I made the mistake on a recent trial, I admit this, <coughs> of going into a jury charge conference thinking that um, it was going because conference can be really long and I didn't want to uh, take away the time of the court reporter who may have had other things to do. Mm-hmm. So we had an informal jury charge conference in the judge's chambers and then we came out and we're going to make our objections on the record so that would be recorded. The problem is so much occurred during that three to four hour jury charge conference that should have been on the record. I was um, out manned by four attorneys who all kind of ganged up on me and um, it was, you know, it wasn't as though I couldn't hold my own. So I had I had four uh, uh, very assertive male attorneys right. that, that were all tried to convince me that they wanted the charge to be a certain way. And I held my own. The problem was that should have been on the record. Right. The arguments they were having with me and the the ridiculous attitude that they had, the things they were saying, they were really insulting me. Do you think that's because it wasn't on the record? They yes. If like it had been them? on the record, they would have been. It's just like when somebody knows they're being recorded on their right. phone, mm-hmm. which I we all we say to everybody also. Uh, you do not know when you're in a lawsuit when you are being recorded. Assume at all times, even when you're on the phone with somebody, it's being recorded. Um, if, if anytime you're in litigation or you anticipate litigation, assume that it's going to show up on the front page. <laughs> no kidding. Don't don't do anything that you don't believe. Even attorney correspondence. If any attorneys are listening to us, if you're corresponding with another attorney, I'm sure you know this, but that's going to end up in the record too. Right, I mean, right. I've had... And even though attorneys are prohibited from recording unless they let you know up front, right. if it's not your client at that point, they can record. And anybody that's not attorney doesn't have the uh, responsibility or the obligation to tell the person recorded the recording. And that happens in, in family disputes, probate. It happens all, all the, time. the time. And then you get the people that think the recording's going to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, it will. <laughs> it could. We've seen some of those, haven't but we, Tony? It usually, it, I say record for your own benefit to preserve uh, uh, to preserve what they have said in, in, the, in a contract type issue, which I had a, a guy that called me and he said, what do I do? I had made a deal. It was, you know, they, want, they wanted to take my car back. They, it was a lemon. They agreed to pay me. Then they didn't. He didn't have a contract. It was all oral. I'm like, you go back there right now. You get your phone recorded, put it in your pocket, and you discuss this. So we have something to show the JP court because it wasn't the kind of case that we want to take to a county court. There wasn't enough money involved. And in that case, you do want to do it. But you're aware you're, you're aware because you're recording. And he's not an attorney, so right. he can do it. Right, right, right. And if you think it will help you and you record it, before you go blasting that out and making it so that a third party can hear it, just let an attorney hear it Look first. Look at it. Because it may not be as helpful as you think, and we've seen that before, too. Right. So, but I do say that you do want to record um, everything. You want to get your uh, court reporter in there if there's not one in there because the you're – you're aware that you're before the bench and you don't see a corporate over there asking for you to announce your uh, who you are and what it is for the record. You uh, immediately stop and just politely ask, particularly if you're pro se or you ask your attorney to do it, um, may I have a court reporter? That's it, and, and if something you don't have, you don't, the court reporter is a, a public service. If um, to the extent that that they're being paid by the government to be, you know, recording 
uh, on the, the stenographers' the transaction, transactions. Right. And in federal court, they do it. Um, they do it like by recording, which I don't know how they do that, but hmm. they actually have a recording of it. You can go literally after the day at trial or whatever hearing is and go down to the clerk's office and ask to hear the recording that day wow yeah which is crazy I know the, the technology is just incredible right now mm-hmm. but um you can if you believe that something was said of record you can actually contact the court reporter and they'll tell you what the fee is and they'll give you a certified transcript and you can use that on appeal which is what on appeal what you do you actually have to ask for the the court reporter's record mm-hmm. so that it hits the appellate court so they can hear what happened or they can read what happened depending on what court you're in so mm-hmm. that's kind of where we're going with that the court reporter being so critical so when the court reporter's present the pro se person or the attorney needs to make sure that they make contemporaneous objections or other timely requests for actions by the trial court or yes. the tribunal mm-hmm. meaning they have to do it right then and it's not a good idea to have a running objection on something that keeps coming up if somebody's not supposed to be bringing something up or, um, uh, well, particularly in a trial, and, and, and in fact, mostly at a trial, because you don't, the, if it's a bench trial, you don't care if they keep bringing it up because you're just asking the judge to ask them not to bring it up so the judge already knows. Right. But keeping something out of the, the purview of the jury, uh-huh. they shouldn't be hearing. It's very, very important. And if you've got like a dastardly attorney who's probably just doing the best job they can and sometimes breaking a lot of ethical rules, they're going to keep trying to bring this stuff up and bring it in and in some way. And you've already got a motion in limine or you've already got something where they, they can't bring it up unless you approach. And so you've got to be on your toes all the time. And if they keep bringing it up, you can't say, well, I want to run an objection. But let's say that the judge um, overrules your objection and then they bring it up again. You have to keep objecting. Even if the judge is letting it in, every time the same thing comes up that the judge is letting in, you have to object again. Otherwise, you've waived your objection. And that's crazy. Even if they do it 15 times yeah. and you don't object yes. once? If, well, if, the, if, you, if you object the first time, the judge lets whatever it is. Let's say that you don't want them to bring up um, that their conspirator is... Uh, it's currently in jail, accused of murder, okay? okay. And the judge says, well, I'm going to let that in. because uh, I'm not going to let, let me see, how do we, we put that? You want to bring it in, but the judge won't let it in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you bring it up. Well, that's, that's kind of backwards because um, I'm thinking of a case that we just recently had. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so that case, you wanted it to come in. We wanted it to come in. The judge wouldn't let it come in, and it was important because it was a conspiracy uh, with a murderer on, in a like situation, and uh, the the court needed to hear that this that the cl- our client was um, hanging out with bad people, mm-hmm. and he was getting lessons from bad people mm-hmm. who were already uh, felons. And the judge didn't want th- he thought it, the other side convinced the judge that it was too prejudicial to bring that up. But it was basically a huge part of our case. Mm-hmm. And so when we um, we started to bring it up, they would object. And each time I started to bring it up, or they thought we were going down that path, we'd, they would object. Right. So they were keeping it out, and they did actually keep it out in that case mm-hmm. so they were they did the right thing but we had another um i'm trying to think of a case where it's come in against me and um they kept bringing something up where they where i didn't want it in and it usually happens in criminal trials like for dwis mm-hmm. that's the first thing that comes up so i've done a bunch of dwi trials the other the other side wants to bring in a breath test which is not admissible for whatever reason we, we were able to determine that it wasn't admissible and every time it comes up you've got to object and the judge's the judge may overrule it or the judge may not be paying attention, but everyone's got to be paying attention. If you miss once, if the judge says sustained, you can't bring that up. But if you miss it once and it comes in, then it's in and you've waived it. So you've got to be on your toes all the time. And it's not, can't be a running objection, although it should be. And we're going to get into that in a minute, the motion in limine, what that does. 
and why you shouldn't have to have a running injection, but you have to. So, okay. Well, okay. So what about this? You know, we have a lot of discussion about this. If I object, I object, I object. As a matter of fact, we did a case together mm-hmm. where the prosecution, all they did, the jury later said they jumped up and down like a jackrabbit, objecting, mm-hmm. objecting, 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 and it made them look terrible. Mm-hmm. And we actually won that trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what would you tell our listeners about the fine line or the balance between objecting and not objecting? Um, it just really depends on whether I am now of the mind, after having done a bunch of trials where it the objection, I thought it would bring the attention to it. I'm of the mind now that I'm going to just jump up every time. I the juries don't really seem to care that much. That's I think they're interested in it. The problem is if you have something you're objecting to that the judge overrules it and it comes in, the jury sees that you don't want it in and it may taint what, it may taint your case against your client. If there's something you don't want in and and you object to it and the judge says, I'm going to let it come in anyway, now you've you've highlighted something you don't want to come right. in. You pointed it out to them. And that's when you want to do your motion in limine to see to come up front so that they can't breach that motion in limine and that's when we're going to go over motion in limine in a little bit to take, tell, talk about what they are. But, I am now of the mind that you're, you're probably doing you're probably better counsel if you keep objecting because the jury doesn't really seem to be bothered by it. When you talk to them after the trial, they're they're more annoyed if you're not organized than than they are that you've objected. Is what I've did after every trial I've I've learned. That is so funny, Tony. I was watching a trial the other day and this supposedly incredible attorney uh, was didn't have a paralegal, didn't have any other associates with them or anything like that. And they were trying to go through their files and it was just hilarious because everybody, there's so many files. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some telling you, mm-hmm. people can say, oh, you don't look organized or whatever, yeah. but if you're by yourself and you've got, you when know, you're on your own pages and 50 exhibits and you're pretty much memorized where they're at, but they're putting additional exhibits in mm-hmm. and you need to use the one that's in and you've already got like 75 exhibits in you can get unorganized because your court reporter is using it maybe the witness kept it maybe you don't know and where your client is talking to you the whole time that you're and trying then to they're look telling through the you, file. No, you need to stop this and you need to find the thing to prove the lie and you're not unorganized it's just that they're annoyed by that and then the other side of course is you know got a gazillion dollars and and 10 paralegals there and everything is mm-hmm. uh, super just handed to them organized. at their fingertips yeah. Yeah. Okay, what about this? What uh, what do you do besides simply object? Uh, the lawyer has to provide the judge with a specific reason for the objection. Very important that you have a legal reason for it. You uh-huh. can't just say, object, because you may want to object because you need to stop whatever it is and you know something's wrong. That gives you a chance to think of what your legal reason is a lot yeah. of times. Because your client's like elbowing you, and that's when I, I rely heavily on my clients to be paying attention to whether it's a lie or not because I didn't live it. They mm-hmm. lived it. Mm-hmm. And um, I just jump up like a jackrabbit and, objection. And then, and then it kind of calms down, and I have enough time to. You don't have to rush. Mm-hmm. I have enough time to lean over and ask what the problem is. And sometimes it's embarrassing because I have to withdraw the objection because it's nothing. They're just mad. They're telling the truth, and they didn't want it to come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just annoying. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it may be relevant. If you've worked closely enough with your clients, they're going to learn a little bit of legal limbo uh, uh, lingo, and, um, and certainly they're paying you a lot of money per hour. You should be sort of. At least educating them them to the extent Mm -hmm. that this is what we're going to be doing, this is what you need to be looking for. And if they give you a little elbow nudge or they look or they start getting frantic and they're moving around, then um, I will usually 
that's the only way you can stop the person from talking it's an objection right and then usually if i would say about 75 percent of the time it's a legal objection there, there is a reason they it was something that was motion eliminate it was something they weren't supposed to say it's not relevant to the case they're just bringing something up that's um a, a good objection is it's um too prejudicial for what they're trying to get out of it so um are the time it's not within the same time frame they're bringing something up that's completely not relevant to what's going on because the t it's been too, too far gone whether they're bringing something up in the case but anyway um so that's another good piece of advice is your client uh, attorney should always listen to your clients. If you're somebody that has an attorney that's kind of disrespecting you that, and not pay, not letting you join in the case, that's not a good thing. And of course, on the other hand, maybe you've been asking for too much. <laughs> maybe right. maybe your your the, the attorney understands the case better than you think and is is sort of overruling your nudging. But I usually don't do that. If I get an elbow nudge or a look or something, I don't care what I'm doing. I may be I may be not preserving the error for trial that I need to and that one opportunity has been passed because I didn't listen to my client so so true that's true um okay after we give the trial judge the opportunity to rule and they won't rule on it uh generally though there's an exception they need to actually we attorneys or a pro se litigant needs to actually get a ruling sometimes during trial a party may object to continuing a line of question for example and the judge says something like move on counsel right, or right, whatever mm -hmm. and you need to get a ruling right. that goes in the record so that mm -hmm. if you appeal this right. that judge ruled on it if they didn't rule on it then it's, you, it's what even like you, you waived it yeah and there's three steps to that do you have the three steps when there's a um when you're asking for a ruling and they've said something that's prejudicial. I don't know if you have that in front of you. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, um, but... But the, basically the way it works is um, you uh, the attorney, or if you're pro se, you have to object. And it can't just be like I've seen a lot of pro se's do this because y you'll, you see as a pro se how difficult it really is when you're up there on the spot. Right. Some people just have a knack for it and others just got to... They're so frustrated with the other side, which is why you always want to get counsel because... Your attorney is much more composed. They're not living this anxiety. Um, and the other side usually seems somebody lie so much that they want to jump up and down and scream. So you have to object. You have to have a legal objection. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you're not ready for trial, if you don't know what they are, it's really easy to Google legal objections. Well, you've just um, given us two. Relevance was one and more prejudicial than yeah, probative. Yeah, relevance. Uh, uh, Ask and answer. Hearsay is a huge one. Uh -huh. The minute that somebody starts to say, well, somebody told me, mm -hmm. uh, objection, hearsay. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the, that word. And then there's about 23 hearsay objections. Well, yeah, it comes in because it was an excited utterance, whatever. But now you're getting into the, uh, more of legal Nuanced. evidence, and it's, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you know they're going to say something and that, that, that is a lie, or you know that it wasn't that person's not in court to back it up, you're objecting hearsay. Mm -hmm. And so um, hearsay is a huge one. Um, I can't remember the other ones. But if you, you can actually Google a list, yeah. and there's like about 23 different uh, legal uh, objections that you can... Um, uh, come forward. Like if they're trying to produce something that's in evidence, objection not in evidence, obviously it has to be admitted first. So there's a whole bunch of them. But object, legal, um, there has to be a legal um, objection, uh, a legal reason for the objection, get a ruling. Um, if something was said that that was prejudicial or it came out and you didn't have a chance to, to it was, they knew they weren't supposed to say you'd already gotten a ruling that they couldn't say what they said. The witness mm -hmm. just blurts it out. Mm -hmm. Then you want to ask for an instruction to the jury mm -hmm. that they disregard. And then um, you want to ask the, uh, if it's something that's so prejudicial that the jury can't disregard it, you still want to go ahead and ask, uh, move for a, a mistrial. Mm -hmm. So if those three, if, those, if that chain of events doesn't happen, you haven't preserved error. 
So very important that you know those things for preservation in trial. And it's really easy, even as an attorney, for that not to happen. No uh, because kidding. you forget the last part of it. You forget to ask for it, uh, the instruction, it, the, an instruction the and that. Um, and then you have to ask, even if it sounds silly, you still have to ask that the, for a mistrial right then. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't ask for that because it's that prejudicial, then you've lost that ability to preserve error. And the, the judge may think it's something that they need to, that, that he should declare a mistrial on. They take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hurt to ask. It's almost like when somebody's asking for money on the street. The one that asks me for money, I usually give. A lot of times if I walk I know by. you do. Yeah. You're like, I, I'm well, so sorry I don't have any money today. I'll get you some tomorrow. Yeah, but if you don't ask, I don't know that you're not, if you need it or not. It's yeah. almost, and it's just like with prayer, too. If you don't ask, God should know. But if you don't ask, <laughs> you may not get it. You have to ask. Right. So, anyway. Okay. Uh, so, is the issue preserved once the judge sustains the object- objection? Uh, Not necessarily. During a jury trial, a lawyer may object to her opponent's question, but the witness may answer before the judge can rule. Even if the judge sustains the objection to preserve the issue, the objecting lawyer has to move to strike the answer. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's number five in what you just said in the event Mm -hmm. that someone answers before the... Instruct a disregard, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... So I have, you know, uh, top 10 mistakes. Well, let me hear the top 10 mistakes, and then we're going to go into the, the detail of motions and limiting. Cause it's a very important tool that uh, is disregarded a lot, but it should be used. And the motions in limine are the things that happen before trial that keep parties from even going into this line of questioning. Right, right, right. So I want to hear, what are the top 10? I'm really curious. Okay, I don't, I number one, <laughs> ignoring record preservation at the motion stage, particularly summary judgment. So you just ignore it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you have to, on a summary judgment, you're actually objecting. Um, that's when somebody misses their response due deadline. Let's say you did object. You objected a day late. It's like, you know, the person's already drowned. So you have to object in writing. And then, so I do objections and then responses. I mean, my objections will run the gambit from they didn't timely respond to... Um, uh, can't make their can't prove I'm wrong. Yeah, they, there is evidence in this. No evidence, you know. But that's part of your response. But uh, there's a, a whole line of objections for motions for summary judgment, and you have to do that timely. It's um, the seven days before the date that the hearing is set. So it's that's kind of the the motion for summary judgment dance. But very as you know, it's very important. You can lose a case on summary judgments, which we have a whole show that we should do on summary judgments. I don't believe they're constitutional. We've touched they're, on that before. That you're trying to just get a case to be out of the court prior to actually having your trial, and judges can grant summary judgments so you don't get your day before the jury or day in court. Um, and, and improperly, a lot of times it's who you know, not what the actual facts of the case are. So it's really important that you get your objections and responses and timely on uh, motions for summary judgment for that reason. So mm-hmm. you can, you'll have a higher uh, court that can... Um, uh, basically give your case back to th- that can uh, mandate that the trial court take the case back and give you the trial that you're entitled to hmm. constitutionally uh mistake number two not focusing on motions in limine <laughs> that's what we're so, going to talk about next we're going to mm-hmm. talk about that next uh, there and i just want to say an additional in addition to their potential for shaping the conduct at trial, motions in limine are also an excellent way of preserving the record for appeal. So, but we're going to go to motions in limine, right, which right. actually happens. Yeah, some people pre-trial. rely on them too heavily, and they shouldn't. And so that's what we're going to go over a little bit. Uh, not objecting is mistake number three. Huge. Just, just, yeah. just sit. We just we, talked about. You just mm-hmm. said that. Uh, not devoting sufficient time to preparing and objecting to jury instructions. 
Oh, huge, huge. Because the jury can only respond to the, the instructions they're given that are read to them, that are, on the, that, that, that are presented to them. If you've got the wrong, if you don't have the right question in there, you don't instruct what a legal definition is for something as simple as maybe best efforts or fraud. They, they don't have a legal definition or anything to define it by. How can they make a decision? Jury instruction is huge. That's why the jury charge conference is huge. And they're really, really tedious and difficult. Um, but a lot more time needs to be put toward that. You think you're done? You're not done at all. You're just beginning with the jury charge. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a very difficult aspect of the case. Uh, mistake number five, giving short shrift to verdict forms. When a That's jury returns a general verdict mm -hmm. on multiple causes of action, the Court of Appeal will presume the jury found in favor of the prevailing party on each cause of action. Mm -hmm. That's why these instructions are, or the charge, the jury charge. The charge is, is just so big because it's so easy to put your jury charge in and the other side put their jury charge in, and then your stuff get washed out in the bathwater because you feel like you didn't have a good case or maybe the other side's more intimidating or maybe their jury charge looks better or maybe they seem to be better friends with the judge. Um, in the last case, we had the judge actually retook both of the jury charges and rewrote the whole thing. Really? And, yeah, um, which I loved. But on the other hand, it didn't have... A, 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 the other side was objecting to a lot of things that were favorable to us. And, of course, I could see that... Um, and the, the judge was going along with it. They seemed to, to argue very eloquently why... Uh, there and they had like a slew of attorneys with them why the charge should be like they wanted it but I took you know I asked for a little time um, to review the law uh, over the lunch hour to go over it and to find the law to support my case on why they were wrong because I didn't know I was going to go that direction and the judge ruled in my favor so um, you can't ever give up and when you're in trial you are in a marathon there is no time to stop no time to be laxable no time to think that wouldn't be a, a problem it's going to be a problem if you if your instinct is a problem if your client reads it and says how are they going to answer this in our favor i can't even answer this it's a very good thing to give to your client even if they think that they're brain dead at that point let them see it take some time out to look at it. the judge will let you usually go overnight to review it to see, it, is this what we need in our answers? Is this what the appellate court's going to see? Because you have to anticipate at all times that you're not going to win, even if you think it's a that case. Right. And, and be prepared to go to the appellate court with it because you don't know how juries are. You don't know what they're going to see. You don't know what they did see. So th that jury charge and the instructions are highly critical and not something to be overlooked. Right. And I will add that you don't have a jury charge if you have a bench trial. Mm -hmm. but, um, well, so here we go. Mistake number six, not requesting a statement of decision in non-jury trials. Okay. I keep following one step ahead here. Uh -huh. um, and that's the findings <clears throat> of fact and conclusions of law. Mm -hmm. You have only a certain period of time to ask for that to determine why the judge came up with what they did. And if you um, request some time, I think it's 20 days after the um, the verdict is, or not verdict, but when the judgment's entered, um, you ask for findings of fact and conclusions of law, and you don't get those timely, then you have to timely file a request for late findings of fact and conclusions of law and if you do those two things you preserved your error if you don't it's presumed that the judge ruled properly and you don't even you never even get to see what's on their mind mm -hmm. very, very important. right and the appellate court will just presume that they rule based mm -hmm. on another ground yeah. and i will say this findings of fact and conclusions of law are prepared by the attorneys generally and not the court so um if you do a pre-trial brief which is something that i do all the time now it's kind of your uh findings of fact and conclusions of law you're telling the judge up front this is what uh, this is why, why you should decide my case the way you should decide it before any evidence has come forth. Then you prove that evidence that you say you're going to bring forward. So the judge pretty much already has 
the findings of fact and conclusions of law. You're saying, and they do that in federal court all the time. You have to actually set out what you're going to, what fact findings you're going to prove up with the evidence. So they've, I think the federal courts have it streamlined almost to a science. But um, it's also, it's giving away so much when you do that because there's no element of surprise because you have to, you, you're required up front to produce that. But right. findings of fact and conclusions of law, at a bench trial, very, very important. If you don't ask for them timely, you don't know what the... And I will say this. I had a, co- a case that we lost to the bench, and the, I just could not believe we lost this case. It was a, an eviction case that went to county court, and this, this gal wouldn't leave. And I was um, just frustrated with this judge because I thought, we proved our case. Get them off this land. They're deadbeats. And then when I, I requested the findings of fact and conclusion law, when the judge came back, she provided, and she prepared the findings of fact, she provided some information that I didn't know before. I was stunned. I'm like, I, and I can't remember what it was right now, but it was something that she came forward with that that I withdrew my um, I withdrew my appeal because I I understood now that I couldn't win based on what she had provided. It was something some um, esoteric little thing that that she wanted in her court. It was in her rules that mm-hmm. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, a small correction that I had to make. And I withdrew the appeal. We refiled the eviction. So we brought a new case because you can do that. You don't have race judicata on appeals, on, on evictions because they're still there. Right. They're still trespassing. They're mm-hmm. still not paying the rent. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I corrected the mistake and then they dropped. It. We, we got her off. We got her evicted. We won like four cases after that. So the fines of acting the, the and conclusion law are required before you file an appeal. It extends your appeal notice period so you can see if there was actually some mistake that you didn't know about or that the court wanted so you know whether or not an appeal is even going to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, mistake number seven, not moving for a new trial on the grounds of excessive damages. Mm-hmm. In a great majority of cases, it's not necessary to file post-trial motions for either judgment notwithstanding the verdict or new trial <clears throat> in order to preserve an issue for appeal. There is, however, one important exception. Arguments based upon excessive or inadequate damages must first be made in a motion for new trial or they cannot be raised for the first time on appeal. Well, I, I always do a motion for new trial. To, um, I mean, there's, only, there's certain specific things that you can ask for a new trial on because you're not going to get it unless you meet the criteria. And I think it's under... Um, Texas Rules of Civil Procedure 329B. I think that's where they, they're at, so it's at, at that, that, that code. But if you just put mo- motion for a new trial, it gives you the five main um, things that you have to look for. And the first one that comes to mind, of course, is jury misconduct. And then um, you can only find that out after you look into whether the jurors were felons or they lied about something because they actually knew one of the people on, you know, in a small town, you can't get away with that as easily like in Harris County. But if it was somebody that they went to school with and they didn't say and there was a prejudice built in and they lied about it, if you got a, a person lined over Vordire, which is why you went Vordire mm-hmm. on the um, our Vordier, you know, as everybody tries to you know say it so cute. Vordier, Vordier, um, If uh, if you find that they've lied, then that jury misconduct, you find that out after the fact because you know you should have won and you don't know why you didn't. But another one is new evidence. Um, that's that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Legal sufficiency, factual sufficiency, new uh, new evidence, jury misconduct, and there's one other. But there's also other reasons for a motion for new trial, and it's going to be excessive damages um, that were awarded by the jury are of the court and so you do want to move for a recon I, I titled them usually um, the same thing if you're asking for the same motion to reconsider um, I, I file them I filed two separate ones but they both serve the purpose of extending your notice for appeal a motion to reconsider motion for a new trial if you've got new evidence of the things that we discussed are things that are in the um, the, the code um, but you also want to move for um, and the, you were saying that you don't have to do it but I always do it if I feel like I got um, 
if, if the jury got it wrong and it was so clear it was legally improper, you'll move for a for the, the court to disregard the jury verdict on whatever issue it was. For example, if the jury came back with a promissory estoppel um, uh, finding when you can't have promissory estoppel when you have a contract, then that the, that was an improper charge that slipped by. You still have to ask the judge to reconsider now with more case law with your motion to disregard the jury finding. Um, that's also uh, kind of the same as asking for a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, but it's slightly different. Um, if, if in doubt, do both. I think both will preserve your error. Um, but you also want, there's also other motions that will extend your uh, appeal deadline and we've talked about this in other shows but you've got to file a notice of appeal within 30 days of that judgment it's a drop dead date if you miss file the notice it's only a one line thing yeah. you file it to the trial court you ask for an appeal and if you're in Harris County you ask for the 1st or the 14th because both have jurisdiction or if you're up here in Montgomery County you ask for uh, you're making your notice of appeal to the 9th but you still file it with the trial court if you make a mistake because you're pro se and you don't know and you file it with the appellate court they still will accept it they will yeah so it's just a, an error and they'll, they'll cut you some slack but um but you can extend that deadline and I, a lot of times i do because i may not want to appeal it um if i can get a motion for a new trial which we've gotten in, uh, several motions for a new trial recently here in montgomery county because um the jury got it wrong and the judge agreed mm -hmm. and they gave us a new trial because there was error there was new evidence or well, whatever tony why don't they just if if the jury got it wrong and the judge agreed why don't they just grant your motion uh, notwithstanding the verdict, or, or well, they do that, but a lot of you, a lot, most I say a lot of times. Don't you make those contemporaneously um, when you're in after, court? After uh, one side or the other rests their case, um, you'll usually move for a directed verdict. Mm -hmm. If, uh, like for an example, if the plaintiff in a criminal case, plaintiff um, prosecution, uh, the state, prosecution, mm -hmm. if they they um, the the defense will move for uh, every time. You never miss the opportunity to move. For a directed verdict if they haven't proven their case if a client if someone doesn't show up if they don't have admissible evidence if if somebody goes, stands up if someone's on the stand the witness and they say um i was there i did it you know uh that may not be enough but <laughs> has uh, that ever happened to you yeah, it has not, i was I there i did it <laughs> i did it um because a lot of times people are lying that they did it because it's um the, For it's some the thing, they're trying to exonerate the person that's being um uh, uh, has been charged mm -hmm. and they know that have got uh, that's a, if they want this person to stay out of jail or for whatever reason they'll say they did it and now they've thrown a wrench in there because now there's reasonable doubt mm -hmm. and uh, but you don't see that very often where someone's going to throw themselves on the sword for somebody but you can't ask for um, I guess you could stand up and say judge I move for a directed verdict right then but generally you wait for the close of evidence and then you ask for that and uh, we almost got one in a trial we did several years ago because it was just so clear we should have gotten it. We didn't. But you want to move for a directed verdict because there's not enough evidence to prove, particularly in criminal cases, when it's uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a huge, high, high standard. That means you have to be 99% sure that they did it, which I don't think juries always go by that because a lot of times there's clearly reasonable doubt and they still find them guilty, which I, I just want to hang myself after going, you know, working so hard on these cases. But that's what juries do. And that's why you have these these post-trial verdict uh, motions that you can file to get it right mm -hmm. or go back and maybe get a different jury or maybe you have to figure out what happened. And so that extends your deadline 90 days from um, – it's uh, it's 90 days from it's the normally original normally 30. Day. It, it goes to 120. Uh -huh. And um, 
I try. I, I think you you can actually get your notice. I'm trying to say you can extend it even further. Well, you can, can't you? If you file an extending motion, that automatically it extends, extends it, but it, it only goes to uh, <clears throat> the 120 day, and then you have to have that notice appeal in. But you also there's a, a, another um, when you're trying to get evidence in that you didn't get in, and it's a, a formal offer of proof, and it, there it kind of extends it a little further because you're. And I don't want to say I, I want to say that you want to, to be conservative and just get your notice of appeal in. But if the trial court won't let you have your off, won't agree to your formal offer of proof for whatever reason, then there that there's some more legal uh, uh, process you have to go through. But just don't. The bottom line is don't miss the deadline. If you haven't filed a motion for a new trial and you don't know how to do that. Just get your notice of appeal in. Don't miss the deadline. You can you can play around with your appellate briefs. I say that you want to get them in when they're due. But if you've missed the date entirely for some reason, or uh, you, your maybe your internet was down or whatever, everything's generally filed e-file these days. Uh, the appellate courts are uh, a little bit more forgiving. Uh, if you have a good reason, they will extend the deadline, even if you miss the deadline and you file it later. For the briefs, I see that all the time um, with pro se's. They didn't file a brief at all, and then five months later, and five months, I saw a case where that's a long time. Um, it was a constitutional issue, and they said we just think that that she missed it, and we think this is a serious enough case and a serious enough serious enough error that we're going to go ahead and let them file the brief. And then it got overturned at the Texas Supreme Court level on the case that I'm thinking about. And I was stunned it had to do with uh constitu- it had to do with uh second liens and constitutional due process and various other things that happened but but this this uh pro se even though she wasn't only pro se after her attorney withdrew she had attorneys and then she didn't know what to do and she was kind of left hanging and and then she went back, and then she was able to refile, and then she won her case. And eight years down the road, she won her case. But At the Supreme Court level? Yeah, that goes to <laughs> never giving up, too. You did, wow. Perseverance is really, really That's important. incredible. Okay, mistake number eight, inviting error. Here the general principle is clear. An appellate cannot complain about an error that it created or invited. Classic examples, we were just talking about jury instructions that you insisted on. <laughs> and... Uh, here, a verdict form you submitted. Right, You've right. just got to be careful with those. Yeah, and same. It ha- just happened to us in a trial where we were arguing about attorney's fees, and it, the attorney's fees were not provided to the jury. So how can you ask the jury to determine what reasonable attorney's fees are when you didn't submit them into evidence? Right. So there are no attorney's fees at that point. That was an error by the attorneys, actually, but... Um, also, to some extent, by the court. But the court's going to go with what the, uh, the attorneys ask. So that was error. You can't come back later and say, well, uh, like the other side did in this case, saying um, we we are arguing that they didn't uh, give us our statutory attorney's fees when they're the ones that asked the jury Not to, to consider um, them. They, they asked the jury to consider the attorney's fees but didn't give it to the jury. You can't have it both ways. The jury is the one that makes the rule, uh, mm-hmm. that makes the decision. Mm-hmm. You, and then if your jury charge form says you can only uh, review evidence that's been admitted, and then you talk about it in closing argument, but it wasn't admitted, it's not admitted. Oh, it doesn't gosh. come up again. So that what you can't come back later and say, well, I, 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 that shouldn't have been in there when you asked for it. So that's inviting error. Okay. Mistake number nine, accepting the benefits of a judgment and voluntar- voluntary accepting the benefits of a judgment and 
voluntarily complying with the judgment. Despite standing to appeal from an appealable judgment or order, a party may lose the right to appeal by complying with or accepting the benefits of the judgment. Yes. Doesn't often happen, but you might be surprised. No, no, it, it does. You have an example for that? Okay. <clears throat> Certain circumstances, paying a judgment could run the risk of waiving the right to appeal. So if you have a judgment and you pay it, and then you want to turn around and appeal. However, the Court of Appeals will imply a waiver only if the payment is either by way of compromise or coupled with a voluntary agreement not to appeal. So if you have a voluntary agreement not to appeal and you pay something, you can't turn around and appeal. Right. That's a, that's a contract, and it's really hard to overturn contracts. But a good example of that is when um, uh, you the, the entry of judgment, another another place for preservation of error that gets overlooked because you're like, okay, well, I lost or okay, well, I won. And let's just get the judgment in. Let's just seal the deal here. Not if you didn't agree with it. If you don't go in there when the judgment's being entered and say um, and actually contest it, I don't agree with this, what's said in this judgment. The other side prepared it, which, by the way, either side can prepare the actual judgment. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that the judge said, uh, Cheryl, I want you to prepare the judgment, and, and, and then we'll, our entry date is set on this date. The others, I can actually prepare the judgment because mm -hmm. I'm not going to trust you to put in there, if it was a lot, a lot of claims, something that's favorable to me. You may sneak something in there, mm -hmm. or you may wait three months because you know it was a bad deal for you. Mm -hmm. So, no, either side can prepare the judgment. But if, you need, if they prepare it first, you need to object you don't want to just not do anything. Mm -hmm. You have to object because you're not agreeing. If you don't put in there that you don't agree, say a, a, an example would be, and I'm not phrasing this right, but um, the jury came back with you know $60,000 in, in damages. And while I don't agree with the jury, um, I don't disagree with the form that it's in this judgment because the judge is going to go, if it, there was nothing else wrong, you, you have, may have other reasons not agreed to, if it's not, it didn't, it didn't get presented to the court, but for well, mm -hmm. all the reasons for a new trial. Mm -hmm. So you've got to document, preserve that error by saying, I disagree with this. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, even if you did nothing more yeah. to support it, you haven't objected mm -hmm. and you're stuck with it. And I see that, I've seen that happen over and over. I did that, you know, when I first started working, I thought, well, you know, I lost the trial, this is the judgment. No, you've got to, every chance you get to object, you better object. Okay, mistake number 10, not requesting reconsideration from the Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can just not do it. Well, that's also from the Court of Appeal level. The Court of Appeals, there's a lots of appellate courts. And you can appeal a JP court to the county court. County court to, and, and appe uh, county courts and district courts appeal to an actual appellate court. There's 15 in Texas, the ones in your jurisdiction. If you lose on the appellate court level, then you ask for, and every level you ask right. for reconsideration. On the mm -hmm. trial level, you got this wrong, and here's why. Because they're just people. Mm -hmm. They're just elected officials. Maybe mm -hmm. they never saw this case before. Mm -hmm. Maybe new law has come about from the time that it was found to now, and they've got to reconsider it. I just got through doing a reconsideration on an issue that I moved for reconsideration three times, and I got denied every time to the same judge. And I finally was at the point where I've, I don't, if he doesn't rule in my favor, then I've got to, I'm going to take this to the appellate court and mandamus it because I've got to get this thing done. And, um, and we won. The reconsideration work. Good for you. Good mm -hmm. for you. Listen, Tony, uh, we've run out of time. I think we should talk about motions in yes. limine next time. And that goes before what we've been talking about today, which pre was preservation of error. I want to say hi to my husband, Sam, if you're still listening. Uh, and we want to remind you to serve God by serving others. And thanks for listening, guys. Have a great week.